You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the Gracious, the Merciful, welcome back to another episode here on The Breakfast Show at The Voice of Islam. Um, it is a beautiful sunny day streaming in through the window uh, here at The Voice of Islam Studios, um, and I'm sure we have a wonderful uh, week in terms of weather up ahead as well which we will be talking about shortly but just before that we do have um, a wonderful lineup of topics today credit to our producers and researchers um, so the first segment will be how can intermittent fasting help uh, heal nerve damage this is a very popular topic nowadays and Uh, One which has met very many fruits as well. Um, Our second topic will be covering innocence taken from children. Many youngsters exposed to harmful content with only few reporting in as well. And our third segment will be, is the UK heading for failure uh, on climate goals? And this is always a topic that's very um, uh, incredibly important. And it seems like new information is cropping up uh, on this topic day by day. So um, this will be also a very interesting topic. We have uh, a wonderful lineup of guests as well, uh, who we will be talking to, uh, God willing, all the way up until nine o'clock. I am joined by my brother Mars as well. Um, Mars, how are yourself as well? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Uh, and to everyone listening, uh, first of all, I would like to say um, Eid Mubarak. Uh, warm e- uh, greetings to everyone listening. I hope and uh, pray that uh, everyone's uh, had and actually still having um, a nice Eid. Mm. As, uh, as we all know, this is uh, the Eid of Sacrifice. And uh, today is the third day. Um, and uh, in terms of weather, you mentioned Bashir. It, it, it is uh, an amazing morning uh, this morning, and the weather, the weather has just been uh, outstanding actually for, for the past few days. Mm. Uh, so today there will be a good deal of uh, cloud, but uh, still with uh, bright or sunny spells in the south, where turning hot again. Some rain in the north edging south with the odd shower for Wales and central England later. So tonight, uh, very warm in the south with risk of a shower later. Elsewhere, very warm cloud, some drizzle for western coasts of uh, England and Wales and scattered showers in the far north. And for tomorrow's forecast, uh, many central and southern areas dry and very warm with sunny spells. Chance of shower in the south at first, sunny intervals and scattered showers in the north. Finally, outlook for Thursday to Saturday. Showers or occasional longer spells of rain across the north, mainly Friday, dry with sunny spells elsewhere. Temperatures rising again, becoming very warm to hot in the south by Saturday. So I was um, I was having a look at the weather for the for the next uh, few days, for the next actually two weeks, and um, it was it did say that uh, the coming Sunday 
is going to be the hottest uh, uh, day yet, um, with the temperatures going up to 35 degrees. Oh wow! So <laughs> that's gonna be it's gonna be I guess uh, amazing for uh, for some, but uh, as we all know, the the sun over here, um, the the heat, the UK as we could say that it, it does. Um, scorch uh, people it's very scorching heat and uh, that's why we'll be seeing uh, we'll be seeing people flocking towards the towards the beaches because um pe- uh, kids are going to be breaking up breaking up for the holidays very mm-hmm. soon so i think in, in that regard uh, it's going to be good for people because they can they can go out and enjoy themselves because uh, uh, we haven't really seen too much of the sun this year. Mm, we haven't. So, yeah, so it's been more more towards the rain side. Yeah. So I think that's why um, it's good in a sense that uh, we'll be getting a change, a nice change. And uh, let's hope this uh, change does <laughs> does uh, stay for a while. Yeah, I mean it could it could be a bit too well um, as you as you mentioned Sunday as well. I was just looking as well. It seems like the Monday on the eighteenth of uh, July is gonna, the high is going to be forty degrees. Uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, so it's is really going to pick up. The high for today is uh, thirty degrees, though, as it has been for the past few days as well. Um, uh, I would strongly advise uh, all of our listeners to apply sun cream wherever possible, um, to wear a hat if possible, and to avoid uh, prolonged periods in the sun. Um, to avoid heat stroke and sunburn but I'm sure you are already all aware of that and doing that already um, but talking about um, just before we do talk about the news Mars, I did want to ask you how, how was your Eid? Oh Alhamdulillah by the grace of Allah the Almighty it was, uh, it was very good um, I myself uh, I'm a local imam uh, at a at the Hanbu Mosque, the Felton Mosque, actually, mm. the Battle Royal Mosque. And um, by the grace of Allah, the mosque uh, was uh, full of uh, men and women, uh, worshippers that came and uh, you know, enjoyed uh, praying Eid in the mosque. Because um, as we all know that uh, COVID is now, um, the COVID rules regarding uh, regarding praying in the mosque has have been eased mm. quite a lot so now um what uh, the 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 rules were that um the social distancing was scrapped but uh, everyone did have to wear masks still so uh with that uh, the the attendance was uh, was very good as well um mm. not just not just at this mosque at this local mosque but uh the mosques uh, around the UK uh, and uh, after this, um, after the prayer, we we listened to the the Eid sermon uh, delivered by His Holiness Mr. Musur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper. And uh, after that, uh, refreshments were served, and uh, the weather was pretty good on the, that day. Yeah, the weather. So, Alhamdulillah, by the grace of Allah, it was very very pleasant. Yeah, the weather was great that day and, you know, it was uh, wonderful to um, actually be able to go back to the mosque. Um, I think um, this was this, the second Eid back where we could actually go to mosques. Um, yeah. So it's been, it's been, we've been seeing, a, um, you know, a bigger increase in number as well. Um, mm. And, you know, it, 
it does seem like we are finally getting back to track where uh, we've lost out on so much time, not just ourselves, but, you know, sort of everyone um, around the world because of the pandemic. Um, but I think it is high time to move on to the news now. Um, so just reading from the BBC headlines, um, the Financial Times paper says a number of Tuesday's papers lead with the latest from the Tories' uh, leadership race. The Financial Times reports that Rishi Sunak is to pledge to cut taxes if he is the next Prime Minister, but only once he has gripped inflation. Sunak is currently the bookie's favourite, but some of his rivals have criticised the level uh, levels taxes reached under his chancellorship and promised uh, immediate cuts should they win. And obviously this is following um, a very um, interesting time uh, within the government where uh, Boris Johnson has resigned as Prime Minister. Um, but following on, uh, the Times paper says, Mr Sunak's pledge comes as support for Foreign Secretary Liz Truss grows. It reports that Miss Truss is expected to get the backing of two of Boris Johnson's closest supporters, Culture Secretary uh, Nadine Doris and Brexit Opportunities Minister Jacob Rees-Mogg, increasing the, the likelihood she will be the candidate of the Tory right. The Daily Mail says Miss Truss has warned the Tory right that uh, it risks handling uh, Rishi Sunak the keys to number 10 if it fails to unite behind her. Um, the I paper says Sir Mo has said his father was killed in the Somali civil war and he was later separated from his mother, reports the I. The paper says the runner's wife helped him uncover his past after noticing missing pieces to his story. It also says the Home Office has dismissed suggestions that Sermo could be stripped of his British nationality. Um, the Mirror also talks about uh, Sermo referring to his secret ordeal. It quotes the athlete saying, whatever the cost, I need to tell my story. Uh, the Guardian's front page carries an interview with Mark McGann former lobbyist for Uber, who leaked thousands of documents revealing how the company lobbied some of Europe's top uh, politicians to help establish itself in the continent's markets. The Metro leads on the announcement that former Formula One boss Bernie Eccleston is to be charged with fraud by false representation over an alleged failure to declare more than £400 million uh, sterling in overseas assets. The paper says the 91-year-old could face a jail term of up to 10 years if convicted. Uh, the Telegraph reports the, that Britain could see its first ever national heatwave emergency this weekend with temperatures expected to reach up to 40 Celsius. Uh, the paper says that senior officials held a crisis COBRA meeting in Downing Street on Monday and that schools, travel and health services are all expected to be impacted as well. Um, it's quite surprising that um, uh, this and the Daily Express are the only uh, newspapers talking about the heat wave uh, that's coming. But um, the Daily Express does say the coming heat wave could bring the hottest day in Britain's history and has prompted the Met Office to warn of a danger to life, the experts report as well. Um, so all these health and safety um, 
protocols um, are definitely to be adhered to. And the star says the soaring temperatures could leave Britain as hot as Death Valley, an area of desert in California known as one of the hottest places on Earth. Um, so essentially, to summarize uh, the headlines, it seems most of the papers seem to be talking about uh, what is to come following uh, the resignation of Boris Johnson, um, also talking about uh, Selma Farah's history as well, and also the heat wave that is to come. Brother Mars, have you found anything in the news that has caught your eye? Uh, yeah. So, uh, in regards to the Shinzo Abe shooting, uh the apparent motive given by the man accused of assassinating Shinzo Abe has cast a spotlight on the Unification Church and its ties to politicians. Tetsuya Yamagami has confessed to killing the former Japanese Prime Minister during a campaign speech on Friday. He blamed the, go uh, the global religious movement, whose members are often referred to as Moonies, for bankrupting his family and believed that uh, Abe had championed its activities in uh, Japan. So the Japan branch of the church has confirmed that uh, Yamagami's mother is a member, but declined to comment on the sister's claims that she had made a huge donation more than 20 years ago that left the family struggling financially. The, the branch's president, uh, Tomihiro Taraka, who told a press conference that Yamagami's mother became a follower in the late 1990s, adding that the family had suffered financial ruin around 2002. The organization's official name is the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification. Although it is better known as the Unification Church, it was founded in South Korea in 1954 by Sun Myung Moon, whose uh, strident anti-communism uh, anti would lead him to build ties with conservative politicians around the world, including in Japan. Moon, who died in 2012, said he had a vision, aged 15, in which he was told by uh, Jesus to complete his unfulfilled mission to restore humanity to a state of sinless purity. The church's early adherents were effective recruiters, and membership soared from an initial group of 100 missionaries to around 10,000 in a few years. And then, uh, often described as a cult motivated by financial gain, the church became known for conducting mass weddings in huge sports stadiums involving thousands of couples who were meeting for the first time, and at one time claimed to have about 3 million followers worldwide. So this was one uh, one article which um, which did catch my eye in regards to in regards to the shooting, uh, in, in regards to the assassination of uh, Shinzo Abe. And uh, apart from this, uh, Bashir, you have mentioned all the all the headlines, uh, which do cover um, all the top stories. I think there was one more story which I did find um, uh, quite interesting, and I do believe um, it does come under the breaking news uh, banner. Um, and this was with a re regards to um, the war in Ukraine. So essentially. SAS reports reveal troubling pattern of suspicious deaths in Afghanistan. SAS operatives in Afghanistan repeatedly killed detainees and unarmed men in suspicious circumstances, according to a BBC 
investigation. This is an article that was published today, um, an hour ago. Newly obtained military reports suggest that one unit may have unlawfully killed 54 people in one six-month tour. The BBC found evidence suggesting the former head of special forces failed to pass on evidence to a murder inquiry. The Ministry of Defence said British troops served with courage and professionalism in Afghanistan. The BBC understands that General Sir Mark Carlton Smith, the former head of UK Special Forces, was briefed about the alleged unlawful killings but did not pass on the evidence to the Royal Military Police even after the RMP began a murder investigation into the SAS squadron. General Carlton Smith, who went on to become the head of the British Army before stepping down last month, declined to comment for this story. Uh, BBC Panorama analysed hundreds of pages of SAS operational accounts, including reports covering more than a dozen kill or capture raids carried out by one SAS squadron in Helm Helmand in uh, 2010 and uh, the 2011 period as well. Individuals who served with the SAS squadron on that deployment told the BBC they witnessed the SAS operatives kill unarmed people during night raids. Um, they also saw the operatives using so-called drop weapons, AK-47s, planted at a scene to justify the killing of an unarmed person. Um, you know, this is really worrying because not only is it... Um, you know, sort of justifying the murder of innocent people, um, unarmed people. It's um, justifying, uh, it, it's sort of being aware of that and also um, using the evidence, uh, creating their own evidence, which is a very, very troubling situation because there is deceit involved as well now. Several people who served with special forces said the SAS squadrons were competing with each other to get the most kills and that the squadron scrutinised by the BBC was trying to achieve a higher body count than the one it had replaced. Internal emails show that officers at the highest levels of special forces were aware uh, there were concerns over possible unlawful killings, but failed to report the suspicions to military police despite a legal obligation to do so. The Ministry of Defence said it could not comment on specific allegations, but that declining to comment should not be taken as acceptance of the allegations. Factual accuracy, an MOD spokesperson said that British forces served with courage and professionalism, as stated before, in Afghanistan and were held uh, to the highest standards. Um, but obviously what we're seeing now, what's coming to light, um, it seems that, you know, this is incredibly sad to hear. Um, and Brother Mars, we've... Um, in Islam, there's many rules for war, aren't there? Um, and they're very um, peaceable rules, essentially. You know, such things as um, not even harming a tree uh, in combat. Uh, but do, would you like to reflect a bit more on that? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, you're, you've mentioned it very, uh, very well. So Islam, Islam is a religion of uh, peace. So Islam, the word Islam itself means peace. Um, and this is the first point. Second of all, uh, when we, if we look at the teachings of Islam and the the life of the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, the 
Holy Prophet uh, Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was so careful in terms of uh, war and um, was so, um, you know, the teaching was so beautiful that he used to say that when you go, when you go uh, to a battle, uh, make sure that uh, you do not harm trees, you do not harm the land, you do not harm um, the, the, the women, you do not harm the children. So the, these kind of these kind of teachings show us that uh, in fact Islam is a you know is not a religion which promotes war, is not a religion which promotes killing at all. Um, and uh, apart from this, um, we you know there's in Islam the teaching that um, uh, killing uh, one person is uh, the same as killing the whole of mankind. But this, if you if we look at this teaching alone, uh, we can you know we can we can realize it makes us realize that Islam is actually a religion of peace, and uh, that is why um, we promote this to to people um, in the world because there is a misconception, um, unfortunately, in regards to Islam that Islam is a religion of war; it promotes war, but in fact that's not the case. Um, battles that have uh, gone, uh, that, that have happened um, in the early days of Islam were, you know, the, the, the cause of the battles were different. Um, the reason why battles happened before were different. But the thing is, um, Islam is a religion which promotes peace, does not promote killing at all. And uh, as I already mentioned, that uh, the teaching um, that killing of one person is the same as killing the whole of humanity. So that is why um, we promote peace. Islam is a uh, religion of peace. Yeah, and um, talking about that, um, there was a also a commandment as well, wasn't there, to uh, not uh, harm anyone who's unarmed. Uh, at that point, they're out of combat, and um, you can't you can't fight with them anymore. Um, and we see that in this situation. Uh, these SAS forces have have been killing unarmed people, and this is what's causing uh, the cause of concern as as well as the competition as well in, in killing people, which is quite cynical. Um, but I think we should um, move on uh, now to our first segment, and hopefully we can get into some lighter topics and talk about health and talk about how can intermittent fasting help heal nerve damage um, and intermittent fasting if um, you're not aware um, is essentially a way of resetting the body um, by essentially you, you could call it a sort of diet but it's it's more of a it's more of a you know stopping food intake certain food intake for 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 a prolonged period of time um, you know, it can be in the range of 8 hours, 16 hours, so on and so forth. Um, but essentially, how can intermittent fasting help heal nerve damage? Um, so, to talk about this topic uh, briefly, Mars, do you have any opinions on, um, you know, the contrast between sort of normal fasting and intermittent fasting? Well, in regards to fasting, um, fasting is um, 
a brilliant way to to maintain uh, your health. Um, that's why Islam, in in the religion of Islam, we have uh, the, there's a there's a month which comes, uh, Islamic month, which is called Ramadan, in which uh, Muslims uh, have to fast uh, for the whole month, throughout the whole month. Um, and this is a commandment by God Almighty. So this is this is this fasting where you know we fast uh, every single day uh, for certain for certain hours from from basically around sunrise to sunset. So uh, from the beginning of sunrise to to sunset. So when we when we're talking about uh, intermediate fasting, this is. Uh, in some regards, this uh, fasting might be more beneficial uh, to to people because because of the, uh, because you're eating um, at the same time when you when there's parts of the day um, or parts uh, you know the way where you're not eating, um, this might be and um, might be more beneficial to others because. Um, this would result in um, um, the diet being more controlled, and uh, at the same time, uh, one's um, if if one's looking to uh, lose weight, uh, then this is this is a very good and healthy option. Uh, intermediate fasting, um, if someone does uh, want to get uh, rid of weight, if one does want to lose fat. Um, and uh, as I've already mentioned, that this has health benefits as well. Intermediate fasting. Mm. If anyone does uh, want to get into this, but um, there's one one thing that um, um, when when you do stop fasting, uh, should be uh, eating enough um, enough calories uh, so that your your body does stay at a uh, at a normal rate, because. Uh, I think what some people do in uh, fasting is that uh, they fast and then they just drink water mm. and they just go on a water diet. Mm. Whereas uh, that's not the case. That's not that's not that wouldn't really be uh, healthy uh, for some people. Mm. So that's why, um, according to what your diet is and what your body can be um, comfortable with, uh, should be you should be going with that. And intermittent fasting is a is a very is a great way. Um, to to maintain your health. Yeah, and the study we're specifically looking at is intermittent fasting, um, which changes the gut bacteria activity of mice and increases their ability to recover from nerve damage. Um, the new research is published in Nature and was conducted by Imperial College London researchers. Um, and as you rightly said, um, intermittent fasting has you know a myriad of health um, benefits. Um, but I think it's uh, better than us us talking about it. Uh, it's probably better for us to talk to an expert on the topic. Um, Dr. Leila uh, Degan Zeklaki, um, who we will have, um, who is on the line right now. Uh, Dr. Leila is a doctor turned nutritionist. Her personal experiences of overcoming health challenges throughout diet shifted her professional interest to focus on. Power of nutrition. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Um, welcome, Dr. Leila, to. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for 
uh, coming on today and uh, for giving us some of your precious time. Just to start things off, could you explain the link between intermittent fasting and nerve damage? Sure. As you just mentioned, the new research, uh, the new study which was published you know, at Imperial College, they showed that intermittent fasting actually could improve nerve health and boost nerve recovery. But this study was in mice, and you know, mice are not humans, obviously, mm. and they have, in fact, a different circadian, a different nocturnal rhythm. So the fasting would actually affect them differently, and I'm not sure we can apply the same results to humans. So despite the results of the study, I would say this is still a hypothesis. And this hypothesis is based on two theories. Firstly, you know, intermittent fasting can improve inflammation. And we know that inflammation is the root cause of many diseases. So by reducing inflammation, we can boost brain function and reduce nerve damage. And the other hypothesis, which was actually, you know, the basis of this study is that intermittent fasting can improve our gut health. And because there is a connection between our gut and brain, so we believe that by changing the gut microbiome, we could actually help brain health. So this latter theory really comes down to improving our gut microbiome. And I think, you know, one of the studies which your audience might actually find very interesting is it was a study which was conducted in people who were fasting for the holy month of Ramadan. Mm. So this one study was published last year. And it showed that, you know, after Ramadan, the people who were fasting, they had a higher level of beneficial gut bacteria. So, you know, even, you know, when you uh, fast during Ramadan, you can actually improve your gut bacteria. Mm. And that is linked to lower risk of cancer and inflammatory bowel disease. Having said that, the same study actually showed that, you know, when people stopped fasting after Ramadan, their gut microbiome went back to the previous state. So I think mm. this study really shows us that, you know, if we want to experience the benefits, we need to continue to follow some pattern of fasting. And we also know that it's not just about, you know, the time-restricted eating. It's also about, you know, what you eat when you are not fasting. Mm. Yeah, it's, I guess it's very easy to revert back to your old self. Um, you know, once you once you sort of um, stop the habit that... Um, caused um, the healthy gut uh, microbiome in the first place. Um, but what are some of the other benefits that um, you may have seen in intermittent fasting? Uh, well, you know, most of the studies that we have on intermittent fasting are performed in animals, especially in, you know, fat, mice and rats. Mm. And we know that those studies can really be applied to humans. Having said that, we do have some studies in humans, and I think those studies are actually promising. We have studies that show that intermittent fasting can improve memory, it can help with weight loss, it can improve with you know, insulin sensitivity, and it can also reduce blood pressure. And as I mentioned, it can increase the beneficial gut bacteria, improve metabolism, reduce inflammation. And, you know, there are some scientists who believe that intermittent fasting just works like any other diet. So it's really about the overall diet, so the food you eat, and the timing of the meal. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Doctor, for joining. I uh, just wanted to ask, uh, what advice would you give to beginners who want to start intermittent fasting? Well, you know, first of all, I think anybody who wants to start intermittent fasting, as I said, it is just uh, a bit like any other diet. So if you suffer from a health issue, you know, if you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or any, I don't know, heart disease, bowel problems, you really need to speak to your GP or some other healthcare professional before starting, you know, intermittent fasting. 
But let's say somebody is well and fit and they want to give it a try. I would say, you know, keep it simple. Start by mm-hmm. increasing the gap between your last meal of the day and the first meal of the day. So have an earlier dinner and eat your breakfast a bit later. So that gives your gut actually a break. So even a gap of not eating, you know, for 12, 13 hours overnight can actually be helpful. Uh, but also pay attention to what you eat during the day. So during those 10, 11 hours that you eat, um, try not to overeat. You know, when we are fasting, we are actually reducing our daily caloric intake. So just try not to eat too much. And also avoid free sugars, you know, processed foods. And I would say, you know, eat more plant foods. We know that, you know, plants actually improve your gut microbiome. So, you know, have more, I don't know, whole grains, include more plant proteins like lentils, beans, nuts. They, you know, they are high in fiber. They help you stay full yeah. ro- longer. So they help you actually with weight loss. And uh, so, you know, they improve your gut microbiome. So it is, as I said, the combination of time-restricted eating and your overall diet. And every small step can actually help. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. you mentioned uh, uh, plant, uh, plant-based. So what inspired you to start your plant-based uh, lifestyle? Yes. Um, well, I used to suffer actually from severe migraines. I had uh, what we call chronic migraine, which is by definition having headaches on 15 days per month. And eight of them were, you know, being migraine headaches. And in my case, I had like, you know, 20 days of headaches per month and 10 of them were severe migraines. And I had already tried everything, you know, every medication that is available on the market, even Botox injections. And nothing had helped me. Uh, I was already vegan, but I was an... Uh, unhealthy vegan so my diet was really unhealthy and then I learned about a whole food plant-based diet and I changed my diet I started eating whole grains legumes vegetables fruits nuts and seeds and no processed foods no animal products and you know within a few days I actually got rid of my headaches and migraines so something I had suffered uh, from you know for years for decades you know it was healed within a few days so, and it is interesting because actually there is a theory that migraine could be caused by inflammation and a whole food plant-based diet reduces inflammation and it also improves gut mm-hmm. microbiome because it is rich, you know, in phytonutrients, antioxidants, anti-inflammatory compounds. So it is actually, you know, plant-based diet, a whole food plant-based diet, I should say, is really associated with many health benefits. And I think, I really believe that this is the diet that can help us actually manage the many lifestyle diseases that, you know, as a society we are currently facing. Mm-hmm. And uh, just lastly, uh, you mentioned um, Muslims uh, fasting in the month of Ramadan. So we have uh, fasting for the whole day at one side, and then the other side we have intermittent fasting. So what do you think would be, would be better in terms, of, um, in terms of managing your diet, losing weight? Uh, would intermittent fasting be better, or would it be we are fasting for the whole day, for most of the day, would be better. It doesn't in a way matter really, uh, as long as you know the gap, the, the window where you are eating, you actually watch what you eat. Both can help you with weight loss. But obviously, you know, Ramadan is more than just, you know, weight. It's not a diet. So it has all the spiritual, spiritual, religious benefits as well. So but as I said, it's also about paying attention to what you eat when you are not fasting and not overeating. Right. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was uh, Dr. Leila uh, Deghan Zaklaki.
who is a doctor turned nutritionist. Her personal experiences of overcoming health challenges through uh, through diet shifted her professional interest to focus on the power of nutrition. And we uh, thank her very much for uh, being on the show with us today. You can reach her at uh, on her Twitter at plantpowered underscore chi. Um, you can reach reach us on Twitter as well. That's at Voice of Islam UK. Or feel free to call with any questions, comments, or queries on 028 687 But moving straight on to the next guest, we do have with us on the line Dr. Simon Steenson, who is a nutrition scientist at the British Nutrition Foundation. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, um, and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, here at the Voice of Islam uh, studios by air. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, just to start uh, things off straight away, we're talking about how can intermittent fasting help heal nerve damage? You know, what is the history of intermittent fasting? How was it um, sort of discovered or invented? Um, yeah, it was an interesting question. I mean, it's, it's something that humans, of course, have done naturally for for a long time for many uh, thousands of years when when food was not always of course readily available and fasting is of course practiced in religious uh, context of course during uh, during ramadan for example mm. the sort of scientific interest in intermittent fasting on our health is is more recent um really so and there are different approaches to doing this of course um that have, bit, that have uh, supposed health benefits and these vary in terms of how we can restrict our calorie intake. Either it could be to eat nothing during fasting days or only to eat a small number of calories. And one of the probably first most widely publicized diets is the 5-2 diet that's quite well known, um, where you eat normally during five days of the week, but restrict the number of calories that you eat um, to about a quarter of your energy needs during the other two days. Mm. Um, and since the popularity of the 5-2 diet, there are lots of others that have emerged as well. So another example is the warrior diet, where you only eat small amounts of fruits or vegetables during the day and then eat a large feast, uh, meal during a four-hour window in the evening. And then you also have other variations as well, things like the like a alternate day fasting, um, as well as other types of what's called time-restricted feeding. So for example, a 16-8 diet, where you only we restrict your eating to just a, just an eight-hour window during the day. So there are lots of uh, different variations of intermittent fasting that have become popular, but um, I think it's important to stress that the evidence to show benefits is still a, a, a developing area, certainly when it comes to, to, to human trials. And how does, how does the body adjust during intermittent fasting? Um, and how long does it take um, an average person to see effects of it yeah but that, yeah that's a good question i mean one of the changes that does happen happen when we're uh, with our bodies go into a, a a fasted state after eating is that we use up a lot of the carbohydrates that provide glucose and that, and that are normally stored in our in our liver and our muscles um, which means that instead our bodies have to rely on our, our fat stores to provide energy so once our body runs out of, of, of carbohydrates that can provide the glucose, it can enter into what's known as a ketosis. Mm. Uh, so this is where the body produces uh, ketones in the liver um, from breaking down fat, and that provides an alternative source um, to, to glucose. But for some of our 
uh, some of our tissues, things like the brain, for example, that normally rely on glucose. Uh, and this process can begin to happen after about 12 hours or so of fasting. Um, but I mean, of course, it is likely to depend on how much stored carbohydrates we have, maybe what we had for, for dinner, for example, the, the previous evening, and also other factors like our body size or how active we are. And of course, we hear a lot about the proposed health benefits of intermittent um, fasting in the media, um, that it can help with not just weight loss, but also things like uh, blood glucose control and insulin or things like blood pressure and um, lowering cholesterol. But what we do know um, from human studies uh, so far is that whilst intermittent fasting might have some of this benefit, whether or not it is superior to restricting the number of calories that we eat every day, um, doesn't, there doesn't appear to be evidence to really suggest that at this point in time. So uh, a recent um, analysis bringing together um, all of the human, a lot of the human trials conducted uh, to, to date and on intermittent fasting actually showed that it did have some potential benefits for things like controlling blood glucose, but actually when it was compared to restricting the number of calories we eat every day, it was not superior in terms of benefits. Uh, doctor, if we're talking about people who, obviously we, we know that intermittent fasting isn't, isn't for everybody, so who should avoid intermittent fasting? Yeah, well, it is an important question. And if there's anyone, of course, who has uh, has a medical condition, then it is um, a good idea, of course, to consult with your uh, doctor or healthcare team before um, looking at trying out uh, intermittent fasting. I mean, it is something that has been um, looked at um, in terms of research for, for example, type 2 diabetes and providing benefits there. Um, and there is some evidence to suggest that it that it, that it may potentially be, be be beneficial, but it's very important that if anyone is considering this, particularly if they have an ongoing medical condition or are taking any prescribed medications, that they consult their uh, their, their GP or the healthcare team before before trying it out. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Doctor, for your lovely um, advice as well and and uh, your uh, research regarding this. And uh, we, we appreciate uh, your time out, uh, taking some time out for, for us today, this morning, early morning, actually. And we hope to uh, speak to you very soon uh, regarding this. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, that was uh, Dr. Simon Steenson, a nutrition scientist at the British Nutrition Foundation. Um, so two very interesting uh uh, discussions we just had there, uh, Brother Mars. Um, you know, many points on intermittent fasting. Mm. Um, you know, sort of a key detail such as keto uh, ketosis um, and other things like this. Um, there's been, uh, you know, an ever increasing number of links that are being found uh, between microbes in the human gut and our health. And obviously, um, it's our job here on the Voice of Islam to explore this, explore these uh, new topics that are. Uh, cropping up uh, every day um, But we do have one more guest for this segment uh, Fiona McCullough uh, Who has been a HCPC registered dietitian since 1995 Having worked in a number of clinical and community posts within the UK um, It's a pleasure to have uh, with us on the line uh, Fiona, we uh, welcome you to the breakfast show Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you um, Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much. Um, just to start things off, um, 
we are talking about how can intermittent fasting help heal nerve damage and um, speaking to some previous guests we we've gone uh, through the history of intermittent fasting and the link between intermittent fasting and um, nerve damage so could you talk to us about perhaps the different types of intermittent fasting that are available sure um intermittent fasting is as the name suggests where we have a break where we're not eating we're having no food we're fasting followed by um periods of eating and really when you look at the evidence base there is no one particular eating pattern that there is a really strong evidence base to suggest that this is the best one so it's really up to your listeners to identify a method that might work for their lifestyle, for their body, and, and for their themselves. However, there are three that are particularly uh, popular, and there's quite a lot of information in, in the press uh, around these. And probably everyone by now has heard of the 5-2 diet, where for five days a week, you eat normally. You try to eat as much unprocessed food as, as possible. You try not to overeat, but you, you consume a normal diet. And then for the other two days, you try to have a very light food day. So you consume approximately one quarter of your normal calories. So for women, perhaps 400 calories. For men, more like 500 or 600 calories on those two days. So those are the two days where it's not 100% fasting, but you have significantly reduced your normal dietary intake. So that's the 5-2. Then there's another method that is quite easy to remember and, and, and suits some people's lifestyle. And that's where you eat over a 24-hour period quite normally. So that's probably your three meals a day with you know snacks in between. Then you stop for 24 hours. So from perhaps 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. or 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. And then you start to eat again. So 24 hours normal food consumption, 24 hours off for fasting. So that's the second one. We call that one eat, stop, eat. Every 24 hours you eat or you stop. And the third one then is where you have a longer uh, block of, of, of fasting for, for 16 hours in every 24-hour period, and then you eat over an eight-hour period. So this particularly suits people who perhaps don't like to have breakfast. Some of us, when we get up in the morning, we don't really feel like eating. So if, if an eight-hour eating period would be, for example, you could select to eat from lunchtime, from noon, 12 noon to 8 p.m. And then you would stop until the following, uh, 16 hours later until the following noon. So we have the 5-2, the 24 hours eat, stop, eat, or the 16-8. But really any variation on that also will help give the gut uh, a rest from food that allows it to recolonize, to to um, just heal and, and to produce the, the healthy bacteria that will help our overall well-being. Some people, you know, have adapted the 5-2 diet to perhaps um, every, you know, every other day. that mm. They're eating five to 600 calories. So people can feel that they can perhaps 
see what other people have managed to, to follow. But if that model doesn't suit you exactly, feel free to just alter it slightly. The important thing is that we're giving the stomach, the digestive system, a good long break and a good long rest in between our meals. That's very different to the, the pattern that sometimes we can get into where we get up, we eat something, then a couple of hours later we feel hungry, so we snack on something more, and then a couple of hours later we feel a bit hungry again and we, we pick or we graze on, on something else. So it's that longer no food, that longer fasting in the day that, that is what, what really the diet is about. Fiona, that was a, a really well put just there. Um, we, are, we are fast approaching the 8 o'clock news where we'll have to take a break. So um, we uh, will uh, kindly ask you to stay on hold so we can continue this uh, interview. Um, but we do have a few minutes just before then. Uh, so could you briefly summarise, um, you know, some of the alternatives to intermittent fasting that are available? Well, I think someone controlling their, their healthy diet um, in terms of feeling in control, that food is not controlling their life, but rather they have a plan and they are mindfully consuming food um, is, is very important. And for some people actually to have a, a relatively um, regular uh, meals for where there isn't this period of fasting, so they have three meals a day and snacks combined with lots of physical activity will actually boost those feel-good hormones, will get the body metabolism increased, get the body moving and, and some people will find that through a healthy diet following the, the sort of the five portions of fruit and vegetables a day, more whole grains, more lean protein sources through pulses, uh, vegetables and, and lean meats and fish um, and, and less of the refined carbohydrates such as white bread, white pasta, cakes, crisps, snacks, ultra-processed foods. Some people will find that a healthy diet and exercise works for them. Others may find that for a very a small period of time, it suits them to follow some um, calorie controls, perhaps ready meals within their diet or perhaps even a, a, a a model of, of eating that, that's provided through food that's provided. Um, and there are companies that, that do that. We see them advertised in the media. We wouldn't necessarily recommend that as the, the go-to for everyone. It's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly restrictive in some ways. But for some people where life is very busy and they need a help and they need a support and they're in a position to be able to... Um, buy that and that's what they want to do then that may be an option in the short term and sometimes if we can make sustained uh, dietary changes and, and better choices in the short term then we, we reset our bodies and, and our behavior change and we find those habits easier to continue in the longer term when we can perhaps transition back to um, ordinary foods that, that we would have be able to prepare or have with the family or whoever we're, we're eating with that's a really nicely put, Fiona. We will be taking just a short break now for the 8 o'clock news. Uh, but stay on hold and we will speak to you after the 8 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show here on The Voice of Islam. Um, just a quick time check for you. It is uh, just gone two minutes past 8 o'clock here on Tuesday the 12th of July 2022 
Um, we have just been talking before the eight o'clock news um, about how can intermittent fasting help heal nerve damage. And we uh, spoke to a number of guests, Dr. Layla, Dr. Simon, and uh, we were in the process of uh, finishing our discussion with uh, Fiona McCullough as well. Um, so, Fiona, we were talking about, uh, you were mentioning, you know, the, the different types of um, um, sorts of foods that can be taken um, in intermittent fasting as well. But, you know, what what types of food should one start and end the fast with specifically? Well, there are no particular foods that are absolutely essential or are necessarily better than others. But for the, after the fast, if you can have some protein within the diet, that is very helpful. So something like um, some eggs or perhaps some bread or some toast or some oats with perhaps some berries or some porridge with some topping. And um, it may be that some natural yogurt and, and fruit mixed in also suits or some whole grain bread and cheese is also very helpful. And to end, again, something that's quite light but quite nourishing in terms of protein. So perhaps some a sandwich with some protein um, or some soup may, may also be, be suitable. Um, our high-protein snacks, such as nuts, can also be very useful. I would just point out that oily fish mm. are, are rich in omega-3 fatty acids, and that's particularly useful when we're thinking about nerve transmission. So we have mackerel, herring, kipper, those sort of rather stronger flavoured oily fish, the brown sort of fish. Uh, salmon is another source that's increasingly common. Uh, those are particularly helpful, or indeed some of the, the nuts and the seeds, uh, and flaxseed oil is, is also particularly helpful. Uh, Fiona, it's been um, an absolute pleasure having you on today, um, and thank you so much for staying on hold with us as well. Um, but we do hope to speak to you um, at another time on another show. Lovely. Thanks very much. Have a good day, everyone. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much. Um, that was Fiona McCullough, who has been a, H- a HCPC-registered dietitian since 1995, having worked in a number of clinical and community posts within the UK. Um, to summarise this segment, it's been very... Um, um, Interesting, but unfortunately um, a brief as we do have to move on um, and hopefully we can come back to this segment um, another time as well. But we have learnt quite a bit um, from this segment, such as um, the link between intermittent fasting and um, the holy month of Ramzan as well, um, and also um, the sorts of foods you should intake uh, whilst fasting and also different types of uh, intermittent fasting as well. Brother Mars, do you have any final um, comments on on the segment? Yeah, so um, when we're talking about intermittent fasting, uh, as we know that um, in the religion of Islam, we have, uh, there, there is a month, which is which is the holy month of Ramadan, where, mus- where Muslims are, are instructed, are commanded, to, to fast for the whole, for the whole month, and um, as we have heard from the the special guests that uh, and and uh, and experts that uh, fasting has its uh, health benefits, and uh, <clears throat> it doesn't just 
it doesn't just have health benefits. It also, um, you know, relaxes relaxes the body. Just um, fasting is a is a great way, as mentioned by the uh, the experts, is a, is a great way of uh, uh, losing weight, of uh, maintaining your blood pressure and whatnot. So that's why fasting um, is something that is um, um, that can be that that we can say that uh, people should uh, should try and uh, give it a go. For those people, um, I would say that those people who who have not um, tried intermittent fasting or fasting in general, um, they should uh, they should definitely give it a, give it a go, and. Um, uh, this uh, has uh, this. This will be beneficial um, for those people who who are looking into um, different ways of uh, losing weight and uh, trying to maintain their health in general. Um, I would say that this is a great way because uh, in the holy month of Ramadan, um, we fast. It, it sort of it sort of cleanses uh, our bodies. Mm. And uh, refreshes your mind as well, uh, fasting. So because because it has a lot of benefits, um, like it has way more advantages than it does disadvantages. So that's why I would um, I would suggest uh, that those people um, who haven't uh, tried intermittent fasting, they should definitely give it a go and see how it goes. That's um. Excellent advice there, Brother Mars. Um, it is high time we move on to our second segment due to shortage of time. Um, and its name is Innocence Taken from Children. Many youngsters are exposed to harmful content with only few reporting it. Um, and in today's society, we have we all have access to um, the internet, from the elderly to the young. In this segment, we will be discussing the effects of exposure to harmful internet content on children and what is being done to prevent it as well. And um, we will have um, guests for this segment as well. So what are the most common potential forms of harmful online content listed by Ofcom? What effects can these have on children? Children are viewing content on their phones, laptops and tablets, often hidden from their parents' view and they themselves are not in control of what they're seeing. For example, if they're streaming a video or playing an online game, uh, pop-up adverts will frequently appear, often promoting harmful products or showing lewd content, um, which can be morally destructive uh, and not age-appropriate at all. It is an extremely harrowing state of affairs. Ofcom says uh, the most common online potential harms encountered by young users generally include include uh, offensive or bad language which counts for 28% misinformation uh, which counts for 22% uh, unwelcome friend or follow requests which is 21% trolling which is 17% bullying abusive behavior and threats 14% content depicting violence at 14% uh, as well and hateful offensive or discriminatory content that targets a group based on specific characteristics um, which also comes to 14% Ofcom says 77% of those who are bothered or offended enough uh, took some form of action the most common being 
unfollowing, unfriending or blocking the poster or perpetrator and clicking the report of the flag button or marking it as junk. Um, 51% said nothing happened since they reported the content, 12% that the content had been removed. Um, and, you know, it seems that the reason, uh, one of the reasons perhaps why uh, people, you know, seven, uh, so many of these people don't um, report on this is perhaps because there's not a lot they can do. Um, you know, as we see, um, 51% said nothing has happened since they reported the content, 12% that the content had been removed, um, which is a very low figure. Um, so it really depends on the situation. There are many children today who use social media as a pastime but are being exposed to peer pressure, cyberbullying, predators and other ill effects as well. Now other people and prominent organisations have finally started to wake up to the dangers of social media. For example, in response to the report I just mentioned, um, the Rights Foundation, which campaigned for reform of social media, stated, Facebook's own research is a devastating indictment of the carelessness with which it and the technical sector more broadly treats children in pursuit of profit. These companies are stealing children's time, self-esteem and mental health sometimes tragically their lives as well but brother Mars, why is it becoming difficult to enforce children's exposure to harmful online content yeah so often says not at all uh, not all potentially harmful online content or behavior has the same degree of uh, negative impact some potential harms may have a negative impact that is uh, uh, cumulative while some people may have become uh, desensitized to it after repeated exposure. The findings come as the online safety bill continues to make its way through Parliament. Ofcom will enforce the new laws and has already started regulating video sharing platforms established in the UK, such as TikTok, Snapchat and uh, Twitch. Platforms already have systems and pros processes in place to keep users safe explains Ofcom's online safety principal, Anna-Sophie Harling. So the the new laws that are being put in place to reduce ch children's exposure to uh, harmful content, so the they are as follows. Well user flagging tools are an option that are already available. We know that platforms use proactive content moderation to find the harmful content and remove it but we don't know enough about how well it's working. There are going to be really important changes coming in. Platforms will have to do things like risk assessments of products. They'll have to produce transparency reports and publish data. So these were, these were some of the, the points uh, which, um, which highlight why, why it's becoming difficult to, to enforce the children's exposure to online content which which is which which is harmful which may be harmful yeah it's, it does seem like um, a lot of um uh the content published online um you know we were reading those stats from before about how, how many percentages is um you know you know trolling or something like this or content depicting violence and it seems like um you know that i think one of the reasons why people report on it so little, uh, for example, on something like YouTube or something, is because you personally don't know the person who's posting it. So it's very hard to 
uh, unfriend the person or, or block the person on platforms where it's a it's a sort of a group setting, a group sharing um, uh, area or domain. And I think essentially because it's so hard to tell, um, you know, where a person comes from, who a person is, uh, what a per- uh, who, who a person is behind the screen, essentially, it's very hard to pinpoint and say, um, also, you're not this person, so you can't say this, because um, you, you could be anything on the internet, really. Um, but we do have with us um, on the line uh, Miss Catherine Nibs, who is a cyber trauma and trauma psychotherapist using biofeedback tech and gaming to elicit post-traumatic growth, healing and flow. Um, and obviously she will be uh, giving us a much more thorough um, explanation on all of this um, than we have just been discussing. But thank you so much, uh, Miss uh, Catherine, uh, for joining us today. Um, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning, and and the same to you and your listeners. And um, thank you for inviting me to to come and have this conversation, which I believe is going to become more and more important as we um, progress through the online harms bill. Mm, most definitely. Um, mm. And just to start things off, why do you think only sixteen percent of the youth report about something inappropriate that they've come across online? So I think this goes to the the piece of research that Ofcom carried out and and of course Ofcom are in charge of um, the regulation of the online harms bill so they're not actually creating the online harms bill and one of the difficulties we have is when when you're looking to young people to report things that they find offensive or might be harmful there's there's a disparity between what young people actually recognize as harmful what is harmful further down the line and of course we're in a very difficult position at the moment in terms of this this whole space about the definitions of what is harmful and this is this is something i've been looking at for um a number of years now and of course one of the difficulties that ofcom have and they and they really do have it um nigh on impossible at the moment is trying to define those harms that are illegal that we know we could do something about in terms of uh, prosecution, regulation, and conversations that need to happen. But when Ofcom carried out their piece of research, one of the things that children would be and, and young people would be coming back and saying that they found was a normal part of their everyday life were um, bad language, conversations about race, conversations about gender, conversations that are happening online. And the difficulty is, as you've just said, you know, sometimes these young people don't know who these people are. They also don't necessarily know what they can do about it. And I think this is where education is going to be really, really important in terms of the online harms bill. And, you know, like we're having now conversations Mm. that we could give the children and young people education around, okay, when people use this kind of language, that's actually offensive under you know, for example, hate speech. Mm. And in order for us to be able to do something about it, we also need to know that it exists. And what's happening, especially with the young people I work with in clinic and the the kind of research that I'm doing, most young people say, well, 
it's it's an everyday part of my life. It's normal. Nobody else is reporting it. So, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Do the platforms ever do anything? And again, myself, I've actually sat with young people and we've tried to report things and we have reported things. And what young people don't then get is feedback about what's happened to their report or, as is often the case, the report comes back and says something like it hasn't broken our community standards. And, of course, young people feel that it's pretty much a waste of their time to be reporting everything. And unfortunately, it feels like it's a normal part of their lives. And, and perhaps perhaps that's akin to, you know, taking a stroll up into your local um, town centre and hearing people swearing. It's become quite a normal part of everyday life. So this isn't just something that's happened online. It's been, it's been, life has been changing over the past 20, 30, 40 years. And of course, bad language, offensive language is, really part and parcel of a, a young person's everyday life. And what effect do these, you know, acts of violence or just these sort of conversations which are, you know, have hints of um, discrimination in them as well? Mm. What what um, impression uh, do they leave on the young mind, sorry? Um, oh, well, I mean, this is a huge, huge question. <laughs> and one, one that I'm uh, researching, writing about, because what we know from... Um, real world research and this is the difficulty at the moment we don't have enough about the online space but what we know about the real world is if a child lives in a house where there's domestic violence and they're witnessing um, that level of um, witness trauma as we sometimes call it or vicarious trauma or um, second-hand trauma there's lots of different names for this particular type of um, issue is what we know is that has lots of different effects but mostly it is what we classify as something called developmental trauma so children are affected on pretty much all levels in terms of their emotional psychological spiritual it can even go to physical health and what we are looking at now is what kind of harms um, happen online and how can we measure those without them being mixed up with all these other kinds of extraneous variables, how can we actually measure it accurately? And that's going to take a number of years. And in my decade of doing this with young people, these these harms have the same effect as the real-world harms. So if a child was to witness, for example, the, the violence of um, somebody being stabbed and they were to witness that online, they also have the same kind of... Um, trauma reactions, intrusive thoughts, sleepless nights, um, problems with attention, and, and they're all the things that match the literature that we already have on trauma. It's just that we don't have the research to back this up, and I'm going to put that in brackets yet, mm. but we don't have the research to say, here's what these harms actually cause. And until we actually can do that, we are still in the process of gathering this evidence. And of course, this is why I use the phrase cyber trauma as well as online harms, because for me, every single child who is affected by these harms behaves and has the same uh, reactive feelings within my therapy office that they would do if they were witnessing this in the real world. Wow. That's, that's shocking. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, you mentioned uh, the online harms bill. Uh, mm -hmm. For the benefit of our listeners, could you just uh, kind of 
uh, elaborate on uh, on what this actually is? Yeah, so at the moment there's something called the, the Online Safety Bill, which is going to become a piece of legislation that will allow um, Ofcom, so they've been nominated as um, the organisation that will regulate um, what what happens online. So this is part of the um, Online Harms um, Bill, which is a, a paper that went through Parliament and is still still being put together, if you like, so what's happening at the moment is the definitions about what online harms are being put together. And mm. much like Ofcom regulate um, what's shown on television, on the radio, they will also oversee this process that happens around the Internet. However, one of the, one of the issues is, is Ofcom has to kind of really, really come from a position where they're not trying to tell people what to do or removing uh, content from online that's going to be a conversation that happens between uh, the platforms the websites the people who are providing these spaces online and that means that it's a societal issue not just off comms and i think sometimes what we tend to do is look towards the legislation and the law and look for that to be the the uh, kind of the the thing that we rely on if that makes sense mm-hmm. so hopefully mm-hmm. Part of this online harms bill is going to have these harms defined in a way that will transition into the space that's coming. So this is the the Web 3.0, the metaverse space. And and that's why it's, uh, again, taking as long as it is, because we don't know exactly what's coming. And this has been the problem with the invention of the Internet. We didn't know that the byproduct of creating spaces like Twitter would result in, you know, vitriolic uh, hate speech. We didn't know that using platforms like Snapchat would then result in uh, young people sharing uh, nude images at the rate that happened. So, you know, the, the technology gets invented and then we have to work with what we've got. And this is why the difficulty of the online harms bill is mm. sitting where it is and Ofcom have that level of, you know, it feels almost like climbing um, a hill of sand. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and thank you. And lastly, what actions have been taken against the websites through which inappropriate content has reached the use? And do you think that uh, enough is being done for it? So, I mean, one, one of the things about inappropriate content is, is we, we live in a world at the moment where these, these um, pieces of language are not appropriate enough to be able to be actioned effectively. And by that, I mean that sometimes the terms are quite vague, so content that um, we can consider is violent, uh, sexual, that kind of content can be reported to platforms and it's usually the platforms that remove it, not um, any other regulatory body at this point in time. Um, if images appear that are of children being sexually abused or of a sexual nature, then we have organisations like the Internet Watch Foundation and InHope and ICMEC across the world that can remove some of these images so professionally i would say no not enough is being done because there's lots and lots of images that can harm and lots and lots of content that can harm and that's the process that we're going through at the moment and from a um the perspective that i see in my clinic we also need to do the educative stuff from the early years because we can do a top-down approach which is what we're doing at the moment the regulation but we also need to begin with 
this is this is not okay. When you um, see this kind of language online, this is not okay. And we need to educate children and families and parents without scaring them so that they can learn what's offensive, what's illegal, what's legal, and, and hopefully produce a world that's slightly more compassionate, empathic, and tolerating of each other. Mm-hmm. Right, well, thank you. Thank you so much for providing excellent information uh, regarding this. And uh, we appreciate you taking some uh, your valuable time out for us today. It's early morning. You're welcome. And, and thank, thank you for, for this conversation. We do need we do need to have these much more often. <laughs> definitely, definitely, definitely. And uh, I uh, do hope our listeners, uh, um, you know, do benefit from this. And um, as as you have said, that uh, not enough has been done. And we really hope and pray that um, enough mm. is uh, done in the near future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. So that was uh, Miss Catherine Nibbs, uh, a cyber trauma and trauma psychotherapist, using biofeedback tech and gaming to elicit post-traumatic growth, healing and flow. Um, quite an interesting discussion there, um, and rightly so, um, not enough is being uh, done, which is um, one of the reasons why this topic, topic comes up uh, so often on uh, The Breakfast Show as well. Um, since so many new developments are taking place all the time. Um, there is an Islamic perspective on this as well, um, which um, is, uh, uh, as we like to do on The Breakfast Show, uh, cover both aspects, the secular side of things and the Islamic side of things as well. So, there have been reports of children viewing inappropriate content which can instantly divert to a child-friendly program when an adult enters, so that adults are left none the wiser. Um, it's for these reasons um, that uh, that have been repeatedly warned about the dangers of internet and social media. Um, additionally, the internet is, is such that it continues to engage one in, uh, of the various programs and applications using a phone or an iPad. Um, but... Um, um, but at first, good programs are watched on these, and its attraction is such that at first, good programs um, are seen, and then all kinds of uh, filthy and destructive, immoral programs are watched, which destroy morality. If a thing or an act leads to a harmful effect on the mind, it is considered low, which is a vain thing, and a character- characteristic of believers is that they avoid all that is in vain. Um, and you know, um, this is a very uh, uh, in-depth subject uh, which we can talk about for hours and hours on end um, and, you know, um, talk about it in so much detail. Uh, but I do believe it is, um, unless, uh, Brother Mars, you have any more uh, final thoughts on the topic, we um, will be moving on to our third segment um, which will be, um, is the UK heading for failure on climate goals? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so uh, the, uh, His Holiness, Mr. Mirza Masood Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, the, the fifth uh, caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, 
has uh, time and time again um, said in his um, uh, in his addresses to 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 everybody that um, these are the there are different types of harms um, which which do exist um, and the the topic that we are talking about right now um, in regards to this specifically. Um, his Holiness has said that um, um, it's very easy to to access um, harmful content online, inappropriate content online, and um, the thing is, uh, the the youth of our community um, are the ones that uh, will lead the community in the in terms of uh, in terms of people will lead the community. Um, uh, you know, after a few years, so that is why um, it is very important for first of all parents to control um, what their what their children are watching and what kind of what kind of vis- uh, what kind of websites uh, uh, they are visiting, and uh, and uh, and uh, also mentioned uh, about um, um, about limits uh, being put in place as well. So, uh, I have a quote here, which Zerlin uh, has mentioned. He said that I've advised Amity parents that they should be mindful of uh, what they and their children view on television and should make sure they limit the amount of time they spend watching it. However, the world has now moved far beyond just the risk of seeing inappropriate content on television. Rather, children are being exposed to masses of content on the internet, on YouTube, and on the various social media platforms. Uh, there have been reports of children viewing inappropriate content, which they can instantly divert to a child-friendly program when an adult enters, so the adults are left none the wiser. It is for these very reasons that I have repeatedly warned about the dangers of the internet and social media. So uh, this just goes to show that Nazur um, um, has... Uh, uh, His Holiness um, has mentioned in the, in different addresses um, to especially the youth um, of the Amdi Muslim community that um, uh, we should be mindful in terms of what you know in terms of what we are watching in mind um, because uh, as I've already mentioned that it's it's not difficult to men- to to access uh, um, websites. So that's why, that's why, um, Hazur, uh, according to His Holiness' advice, uh, parents should be mindful um, because ultimately, at the end, at the end of the day, um, it comes down to the parents because parents are responsible of uh, what their children do and uh, don't do. So that's why, if uh, parents uh, um, limit usage and control uh, to an extent of what the children are doing. Um, that will help uh, and will be beneficial um, in terms of uh, in terms of the the content uh, children view online. Um, that was a uh, you know really insightful there, brother Mars. Um, but unfortunately, again, due to time restrictions, we do have to move on to our third segment of today, our third and final segment, I should say, um, which is the UK is heading for failure on climate change um, and this is a very 
interesting topic, as I said before, one that is always, um, you know, appearing um, since things are changing so rapidly all the time. Um, a recent report published by the Climate Change Committee has highlighted the UK's progress or lack thereof in dealing with the climate crisis. Um, so just going over some of the points that have been listed by the CCC uh, in regards to positive changes uh, made by the UK government. The UK government's new net zero strategy sets out for the first time how the government intends to halve um, UK emissions in little over a decade and eliminate, eliminate them by uh, 2050. Um, it is an achievable, affordable plan that will bring jobs, uh, investment and wider benefits to the UK. It's also a strong example to bring uh, to the COP26 summit of how to follow climate change targets with action. Um, uh, as uh, if, if you're not aware, the COP26 took place uh, last year uh, between October and November, and it discusses these things in, in depth and what changes are to be made. Um, and the conclusion of an independent assessment of the net zero strat strategy published by the Climate Change Committee, the CCC, Chairman Lord uh, Deben said, the net zero strategy is a genuine step forward. The UK was the first major industrialised nation to set net zero into law. Now we have policy plans to get us there. As we welcome world leaders to COP26 in Glasgow, this is an important statement. Overall, the strategy's ambitions align to the UK's emission targets uh, of net zero by 2050 and a 78% reduction uh, from 1990 to uh, 2035, which is 63% relative to 2019 um, but we will be uh, talking about more of these points uh, in detail later um, but we have been joined by our first guest for the segment Professor Sir Brian uh, Hoskins who um, is CBFRS is a British dynamical meteorologist and a climatologist based at the Imperial College um, London and the University of Reading. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Uh, welcome to The Breakfast Show. Uh, Thank you very much indeed, pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. And but just to start things off, please could you uh, just briefly begin to describe um, the work of Grantham Institute? Yes, the, the Grantham Institute uh, sits in Imperial College where there's wonderful science, engineering, medicine and business um, departments, all very relevant to climate change. And, and the Grantham Institute then sits there and tries to get the best research, um, innovation, teaching, you name it, for, out of them and, and really make the best, try and do what we can for helping tackle climate change. So in terms of producing the best science, the best ideas for how we can deal with this with technology and also reaching out to people and helping business and governments actually tackle the problem. And do you believe that the increase in uh, the extreme weather events this year have occurred as a result of climate change? I think in general the answer is yes. If you take a particular event then you have to say well 
there's a bit of natural um, variability in there and a bit of climate change. But overall, if we take the number of um, excess heat waves and we take the number of floodings, we take the number of wildfires around um, and the number of droughts, I mean, we are seeing records all the way around. And so any individual event has lots of contributors but in the whole, we are seeing the fingerprint of climate change here. Thank you. Uh, so, Professor, what is your understanding of the UK's progress in terms of tackling the climate crisis? And uh, uh, apart from this, have any improvements been made by the UK or other countries since COP26? Yes, certainly. Let me start with the UK. Um, the UK um, has been in the forefront um, politically of tackling the problem of climate change for many years um, and in 2008 we had our climate change act which was um, which was really the first in the world to do this where where actually the, our government was committed by law to reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and so it's not just something they can think about doing it's something they are <coughs> bound by this law to do and to put in place the policies to do this. Now, the original target was an 80% reduction by 2050. But, but then that was updated to making net zero greenhouse gases by 2050. So this was really um, quite something. It also set up an independent committee, the Climate Change Committee, to monitor um, and suggest targets, etc. And I was on that committee for its first 10 years. And this, again, is very good to have an independent group monitoring what's going on. So there's been a lot of success in that um, UK greenhouse gas emissions have nearly halved since 1990, which is, you know, that's brilliant. Um, that's, that's great. And it's, the targets then are for a 68% reduction by 2030, and a 78% reduction by 2035. So really good stuff. And there's a, a net zero strategy the government produced, which is a really solid basis for doing this. So all that is good. However, not everything is quite as good as that um, because it's, there's real success in some areas, such as in renewable energy. We've, we've got a lot of um, wind power uh, around the UK. There's... Uh, so onshore wind and particularly offshore wind has been developed here, and that's really a great success. So that that's really good. And electric vehicles are, are coming on the market nicely and, and being taken up. So there's some successes, but but actually um, some of the things are just not happening that ought to happen. And um, so our houses, for instance, um, the insulation is just not good enough. And, the, and that's true in the old housing, and we're putting up new housing that doesn't have the, enough insulation as well. And um, the plan for the future is to, to try and get off fossil fuel, which includes gas. And so instead of heating our homes with gas, then the plan is to have these heat pumps, which work like refrigerators, sort of going back to front. But um, there, there's just... Um, nothing really happening on this at the moment. The, the actual changes in this sort of area 
are not good enough. And um, agriculture, again, there's there's no real plans to how that's going to be the reductions in greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. Mm. And there's also behaviour because we we need people to think, well, I do I need to fly? Do I need to use my car? Perhaps what I eat should be uh, less dairy and meat and um, because all those things produce greenhouse gases. So there's a lot of progress, but there's also a lot of things that need to be done. So that's in the UK, but you asked me about globally too. I mean, globally uh, in COP26, then the Paris targets, which were agreed five years before, then there's a lot of momentum towards achieving those goals, which is limiting climate change to maybe one and a half degrees. But um, now we're seeing with the uh, stresses in the world, that uh, the conflicts, that people aren't really following up as we hoped they would. And COP27 is going to be in Egypt in November. Mm. And the hope was that really a lot of countries of the world would come forward with meaningful targets that, that would make sure we reach that. And also the rich countries of the world would, would produce enough funding for the poorer countries to help them deal with climate change. So there's some good and some bad, as usual, in most things. Mm. Uh, Professor, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Um, uh, I would have loved to talk to you about these different strategies. You know, you mentioned uh, the, the sort of different ones that uh, the ha- housing is not insulated enough and, you know, how there's uh, some forms of low energy housing now being made, uh, passive house, things like this, uh, which are being implemented um, and could be the future of sustainable development and housing as well. Uh, unfortunately, we are pressed for time, and yeah. I do uh, hope uh, we can have you uh, on another show at another time to discuss I'd this. love to be back, and, and there are things that individuals can do. It's not just governments, mm. so just think about what you do, everyone. We should all be thinking and all try and help in solving this problem. Thank you. Most definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, then. Bye. That was uh, Professor Sir Brian John Hoskins, Uh, who is a British dynamical meteorologist and a climatologist based at the Imperial College London at the University of Reading. Um, But I do believe uh, we have been joined uh, by our next guest, uh, Dr. Uh, Aureli Charles, um, uh, who is a senior lecturer in global sustainability at the University of uh, Bath. Thank you so much, Dr. Uh, uh, Aureli, uh, sorry for my pronunciation, for joining us today uh, here at The Voice of Islam at The Breakfast Show. Thank you for having me. Um, so just to um, uh, start things off, um, could you uh, briefly just begin by um, you know, explaining what, what sort of findings um, were found in COP26. What, what were the results, and what we can, what can we expect from uh, what we've learned from them? Uh, well, I'll talk from the perspective of, of the UK, mm. if you may. Uh, I think it's uh, a lot about the financial commitment that needs to be made, and the then Chancellor Richie Sunak uh, had announced at the time to make the UK the world's first net zero financial centre and to contribute to that global effort to clean the financial system to the grid that has led to the climate 
change impact we've seen today. So how do we get to a net zero world and the finance that is needed to go towards that target? And so therefore, uh, the UK's National Infrastructure Bank creating 2021 is part of that effort to foster finance towards the, the goals needed to tackle climate uh, change or at least uh, make a, a livable world for us. So the, the big challenge here is the commitment that have been made need to be met by financial commitment. So it's uh, going away from a greenwashing attitude that we've seen for so many years in the financial sector. And I think here we can learn a lot from Islamic finance, which mm. it goes uh, far away from that notion of greed and uh, going away from financing into activities that may provide harm. So we really need to embrace uh, and change the beliefs around financial accumulation. And just to uh, talk about um, a bit more in depth about the sort of work you do, what what does it entail? Uh, Well, my research is essentially looking at how, uh, well, we all have an element of the way we think that belongs to the different groups to which we uh, belong and that could be a culture, that could be a religion, that could be gender. Uh, that means a part of our decision are based on the groups on which we, uh, to which we belong, rather than to the actual um, gut feeling we certainly all have at the time when we have to make a decision. And that's very important because uh, that hurt behavior, the group thing that we're having, can lead to rapid changes, both positive and negative. And that has certainly led to uh, the climate change catastrophe uh, elements that we're seeing today uh, through the consumption and production patterns that we've seen. But it also helps to uh, trigger the behavior change that we need to see today. And so it's about understanding that we all have that groupthink element, but how do we build from that to make uh, rapid changes happen? So how do we access resources, housing, for example, to your previous speaker was mentioning, um, how, what are the vulnerabilities, so what are the inequalities in access to resources, and how much uh, does it come to the fact that there is an element of group behaviour, and how helpful could that be in triggering uh, behavioural change? And just as a uh, sort of just a final question, what, what changes do you feel need to be made by the British government in place in order to uh, tackle the climate crisis more efficiently and you know it's enough being done um i think there's a lot of uh still unfortunately i'll go back to that notion of, of green finance that we really need to get rid of uh, greenwashing mm. in any way we can think about uh, we've seen that eu have just announced uh, to include both gas and nuclear power in the taxonomy uh, of for the energy transition now the uk has to think really carefully there whether or not we want to include uh, gas, both gas and nuclear uh, power, or do we want to perpetrate that element of greenwashing, of uh, trying to seek some clean targets when we're actually promoting the status quo and, and, and financial accumulation for greater rather than ecological purposes. And uh, Dr. Aureli, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Um, and, you know, since we are pressed of time, we would uh, like to see you on the show again uh, where we can talk in more detail about these things. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was uh, Dr. Uh, Aurelie Charles, um, who is a senior lecturer in global sustainability at the University of, of uh, Bath.
Um, but um, since this is, you know, such a interesting and diverse topic, we have, um, we will have with us joining us um, our next guest as well, and our final guest for um, for uh, today. But just before we are joined by our final guest, um, some of the um, points which have been made about um, some of the negative points which have been highlighted as uh, uh, Dr. Aureli Charles was uh, suggesting, but also from uh, our researchers here at The Voice of Islam, the UK government must drive down energy bills and reduce climate warning emissions by insulating more homes, a report says. Um, official advisors to the Climate Change Committee says government's current insulation programme is shocking. Says consumers are paying £40 extra a year on bills because of previous cuts to the home renovation programme. Um, the committee also says ministers must harness the Ukraine fuel crisis to push ahead with renewables. And uh, it also says to be fairer to poor families, the proportion of electricity bills that pays back historic renewables should be taken off bills and absorbed by the Treasury. But we have been joined by our final guest here um, on this segment uh, in in an Amanda uh, Maycock. Amanda is uh, an Associate Professor and Director of the Institute for Climate and Atmospheric Science at the University of Leeds. Her research covers climate variability and climate change. Amanda was an author of the IPCC uh, WGI 6th uh, Assessment Report. Um, Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Could you just uh, briefly uh, please begin by explaining the IPCC WGI 6th Assessment Report and what it is? Of course. So the United Nations have a framework convention on climate change to which about 197 countries, so almost all countries and states around the world, are a member of. Now, those that um, uh, all, the U- United Nations Framework Convention basically make decisions about um, international agreements on how we want to tackle climate change, on approaches to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And they ask the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, to produce reports every seven or eight years or so that essentially assess what we understand today about climate change, why climate change is happening, what what impacts climate change is having across the world, and what we might be able to do collectively across the world to mitigate further climate change in the future. So the most recent sixth assessment report of the IPCC was published last year. It's in three parts. One part addresses Um, how we observe climate change, what we know about climate change from scientific information. One part addresses how we, um, as humans and as uh, animals and plants, might adapt to climate change across the world. So how we might change the way we live and what we do in order to um, live better with climate change. And then the third part addresses what we call mitigation, which is basically the steps that we can take to try and reduce further climate change from happening in the future. And how have humans' actions contributed to the changing climate? Um, you know, what can the UK government do um, for just the UK in general, but um, also for uh, the wider sake of um, international standards as well? How can, how can we reduce this? 
Yeah, so we know that over about the last 170 years, the planet, uh, the temperature of the planet has increased by about 1.2 degrees Celsius. That might not sound like very much, but it actually is having very pronounced effects already mm. today. So um, that warming has caused increases in the frequency and severity of extreme events, weather events around the world. Those include severe heat wave events and heavy rainfall and flooding events, as well as droughts. So we can see even this week in the UK, we've had these very warm temperatures the last few days. Met Office have actually got issued currently an amber weather warning for the coming this coming Sunday for a warning of extreme heat, which might is expected to be so severe that it would impact on people's health and people are being advised to take um, warning because of that. So this type of event now and are warmer and hotter than they would have been without the effects of human influence on the climate. The UK government has put in place a climate plan, a net zero plan. Basically what that means is that we aim to reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases those are the gases that have caused the climate change that we've observed today, in particular carbon dioxide emissions. We have a plan to try and reduce our emissions as a country to net zero by the middle of this century, so in the next uh, three decades or so. And the way that we need to, to do that and to achieve that is quite complex because greenhouse gases are embedded in many aspects of our lives and our society, but it's things like increasing uh, our use of electric cars, where we can produce electricity through renewable energy from wind and solar power and moving away from petrol and diesel cars, um, insulating our homes better so that we don't need to put on the heating as much. The thing is, all of these things actually have m many benefits to us, as well as being good for climate change, because it reduces our fuel bills and it reduces our reliance on expensive petrol cars, where, which is, at the moment we know the petrol prices are very mm. high. And just briefly, do you believe that um, international agreements such as COP26 have an impact on a country's effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? So we saw last year when um, the UK uh, in Glasgow hosted this meeting, the Conference of the Parties, the 26th meeting as it's called. That's basically all the governments of the world coming together under this United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change to agree next steps, collective action about how to mitigate future climate change. We saw at that time in November that uh, climate change was all over the media. It's being widely talked about in the public domain. So these uh, events definitely do raise the profile. They get the public's attention. They get it in every, at the forefront of everybody's mind. And I think at these meetings, we often see some good political will from countries. We often see countries coming out, making new commitments to increase their ambition on how to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions and to tackle climate change. So... They're a very important part of the uh, global uh, transnational um, movement around uh, climate change action. Amanda, it's uh, been wonderful to have you on today. Um, if so, um, if uh, however brief uh, it has been, um, uh, God willing, we can hope, uh, hopefully talk to you uh, in the future um, in more detail about these topics and we would uh, like to see you back on The Breakfast Show again. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. That was Amanda Maycock, who is an Associate Professor and Director uh, of the Institute for Climate and Atmospheric Science at the University of Leeds. Her research covers climate variability and climate change. Um, so we are fast approaching the end of uh, today's uh, 
show. But just before we do um, sign off, um, there is a brief Islamic perspective to go over as well. Global warming will continue to destroy the bridge between the rich and the poor, as uh, His Holiness uh, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, uh, may Allah strengthen his hand, has expressed uh, advocacy for taking care of our planet, and it, it is an extremely precious and noble co- uh, cause. End quote. Um, his Holiness said that climate change is a natural process which occurs, but man's actions have worked as a fan, speeding up the process. His Holiness noted that climate change would not completely destroy the planet anytime soon. There are still many prophecies with regard to Ahmadiyya that still need to be fulfilled as well. Um, and there are some um, uh, verses from the Holy Quran, um, one in particular, and create not disorder in the earth after it has been set in order. This is better for you if you are believers. Surah Al-Araf, chapter 7, verse 86. And with that, we have reached uh, the end of today's uh, breakfast show. Thank you all so much for staying with us from 7 till 9. Um, and I would like to thank our producer, Daniel Nasser and Ayman uh, Osman, and our researchers as well. Uh, but here's the 9 o'clock news.